I'm Alec Baldwin, and you are listening to Mission Daily. Selected as Best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hey, everyone. This is producer Rachel Kanya. And on today's episode, we have Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer of the Human Rights Foundation. Alex has made it his life's goal to be sure that everyone, regardless of nationality, is treated with dignity and afforded their basic human rights, including privacy. Alex joined Chad at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, to discuss the importance of privacy and how we must democratize information through cryptography. Stay tuned for more on this important topic from Alex Gladstein of the Human Rights Foundation. Alex, welcome back to the podcast. Pleasure to be on. Thanks for having me back, Chad. Yeah, of course. Uh, what are you up to in Austin? Well, um, we're here to uh, rip the blinders off uh, people's assumptions about the way the world works when it comes to human rights and technology. We have a, a panel that we did yesterday called The Dark Side of Technology, and we brought a survivor of the prison camps in Xinjiang in northwestern China, a man who was put in prison for two years and who managed to escape and, you know, hasn't talked to his family in a year and a half and doesn't know where they are. And he's like one of many, many tens of thousands of people who who are being persecuted in this way by the Chinese government. So he's part of this like Muslim minority community there. So there's not a whole lot of information about this right now in the media. So we wanted to put the issue in front of all the creatives and the technologists and the business leaders and philanthropy people who come here to South by every year. It's like the world's largest interactive festival. And to help us tell the story of like the broader issues behind it in terms of data surveillance, uh, sort of what the Chinese government's doing more broadly, we had uh, BuzzFeed's sort of technology editor, Mega Rajagopalan, as well as Melissa Chan, who's a a journalist who's worked for like the New York Times and Al Jazeera, and both of them have been kicked out of China. So both of their work was like so powerful that the Chinese government kicked them out. So the three of them were on our panel and we got to go deep into questions of like, you know, what kind of values should we consider as we build technology? Like, wh- what do we do with people's health data? What do we do with people's uh, communications data? Like, wh- and wh- what what happens if we don't intervene and try to set some like ground rules? And um, it was a big room. It was totally packed. And I, I think it was pretty powerful. Um, there's not really a way to sugarcoat it. So it's it was it was pretty painful, but but I think pretty necessary for people to hear. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think I've read three different stories in the last two weeks about different Muslim minorities and Christian minorities that are not just being persecuted in China, but they're being rounded up. And it's not only is that being stifled, but the fact that it's happening at all, it's almost a miracle that we're even hearing about it because that's not what the regime wants. And uh, that debate and that discussion is, is really important because in the last interview we did, you mentioned that 4 billion people right now around the world are living under some type of uh, authoritarian regime. That's staggering. You know, we, we see these, this stuff going on in China. And I think what I want to talk to you about today is how do we use cryptography and means of creating media that cannot be censored? Um, how mm-hmm. can we use that to kind of push back and get these stories out there in a way where they can't be killed? Yeah. Um, look, at the end of the day, 
uh, I believe that certain kinds of technology will always empower the individual uh, over, uh, let's say, repressive governments or corporations. So when you talk about encryption, let's just say, with, with encrypted messaging, you could say, oh, yeah, that might be a problem because the dictator is now going to be able to communicate with his daughter and son in a private way. But that would be totally missing the picture. No, the big right. picture is that encryption allows the million subjects of the dictator to communicate privately with each other, right? So um, I think we have to understand that things like public key cryptography and encrypted messaging uh, benefit individuals and are a check on power. They're a check on you know the, the arbitrary u- use of power by like, whether it's a, a government or a company. And these things, which are, I think, often called defensive technologies, uh, are just that. They're like a shield to protect us. And we just, you know, my, my view is that we need a lot more debate, discussion, investment, dialogue, panels, conference sessions on the on this particular topic. And I, when I was on last, we talked a little bit about some of this stuff, whether it was, you know, censorship resistant storage, like things like that are being iterated on right now, like IPFS, uh, censorship resistant money, like Bitcoin. We were talking about decentralized internet access. I think we mentioned um, some of the more interesting advances in cryptography that are being implemented now, like zero knowledge cryptography. So someone basically slapped uh, zero knowledge cryptography onto something that resembled Bitcoin and came up with this cryptocurrency called Zcash. So, you know, basically like, when a Zcash transaction happens, you, you don't really know anything about it, like how much, who, et cetera, et cetera. So my general point, though, is that these things may sound a little scary. And we've kind of been trained to think that like privacy technology is somehow bad or it's for criminals or that, you know, cash is bad. Um, and even Google kind of helps with this myth, because what's the signal symbol for incognito on the browser, right? It's like some sketchy <laughs> dude, right? Um, yep. But privacy is a human right. And actually, I think we need to be like proud about it. And um, when you think about cash, like, you know, I think a lot of these law enforcement officials and governments and even the EU and the United States, they're like, well, we're not so sure about like like something like Bitcoin, for example, you know, oh, bad people could use it. But all it is at the end is sort of like keeping the idea of cash alive in a cashless society, keeping the idea of private money alive in a, in a, in a society where all the money's digital. Right. So, you know, you can't really say that cash is like negative cash is like such an important part of how society's always functioned. So I think, you know, when, when we talk about using uh, cryptography to protect people, ultimately it's a, it's a tool that's going to be very democratic. It's going to check power on, on governments. It's going to do it in different areas, uh, whether it's financial or communications or even our own, metadata like like location and behavior and things like that and i i really just want to learn as much as possible about this area and get people talking about it yeah it's definitely not just a money thing obviously and it's more of like you can create an option for yourself and almost like an insurance policy right where you can start to protect yourself because in the business world and in the personal world we might not realize it because things have gone so well for us up until a certain point but the second we start to hold some views that might be considered divisive by others, you know, there's a history of persecution and, att- and attacking views that threaten the status quo, whether you're in America or really anywhere. So, sure, you know, do you think that we can get people to view cryptography as not really something for money, but just something that is is going to enable them to preserve their freedom? Do you think that's possible to get into the mainstream consciousness to shift the view from this is just money to no, if your son or daughter ever wants to run for office, this could be a way to help give them free speech. You know, how do we shift that mindset? 
Well, right. So what's funny is that cryptographic money is a relatively new idea. Now, I mean, it was like iterated on for a long time, but until Bitcoin, the execution really wasn't there. But cryptography has been around for decades, obviously, not just decades, hundreds of years, thousands of years. I mean, the idea of encoding, I mean, there's a there's a there's a really well done book that was published around the year 2000 about the whole history of basically cryptography from everything from like code language that generals used to use in ancient times to obviously the fascinating work that was done around World War Two with regard to both like uh, American forces using everything from like Native American Indian languages to uh, the Nazis using uh, different kinds of codes and the, the British and Alan Turing. And I mean, there's so much history packed into the, you know, the last few hundred years of cryptography. It, it never really was about money until recently, right? It was about just like encoding language and disguising it, right? Yep. So the money thing's quite recent. I think we need to realize that, yeah, like cryptography is is, is a much, is a much much broader thing. I mean, it, it secures so many things about the way that you interact with your stuff today whether it's things like, you know, SSL or like ways that you do e-commerce or ways that you visit websites now, like like so much is encrypted on the web, right? So I think money is just one piece of it. But what what's becoming like a lot more obvious to people is that it's going to matter so much more as we get deeper into the information age. And what's really interesting is that there are some big companies that you might think kind of surprisingly are, are actually taking the lead in this area. So one that I just wanted to point out is Microsoft. So there's a guy named Daniel Buckner who's uh, helping run the decentralized identity part of Microsoft. So I spoke to him recently. He's, he's a really interesting guy. You should all kind of follow him and listen to what he's doing there. So I guess what they're basically trying to do at the end of the day is try to create a, um, a way for you to have your own data sovereign to you, different kinds of data, right? And then that would live, like, let's say on your phone or, or in some way that you can control. And then Microsoft would develop like this layer. It's like sort of like liaison layer. And it, it's called like a decentralized personal identifier or something like that. But it basically is a way for your data to liaise with different services, right? So sort of like an API or something. And then all these different other companies would get to, you would liaise with them through this, but it but it would allow you to disclose only certain parts of your of your information, right? Uh, of your mm-hmm. data profile. So the, the sort of metaphor would be when you go to the bar today to get into the bar, the bouncer wants to look at your driver's license and it says your address on it, which is ridiculous. Like the bouncer shouldn't know where you live, but that's kind of where our technology is, right? What if you could just like flash something and prove to the bouncer that you were 21 without disclosing your eye color and weight and height and where you lived. That That's where we want to go, right? So that's what Microsoft's sort of tackling now. So the work of these big companies uh, is actually quite important. I think um, sometimes we get a little carried away with like these sort of radical software projects, uh, which are which are awesome, but we, we will need to get the big, big brands on board, right? So it is kind of exciting that that we're seeing companies like Microsoft take this seriously. Definitely. And that type of investment too, a lot of people think, oh, that's going to be a negative thing because Microsoft will end up owning that space or monopolizing it. And I think the history of innovation is typically large companies make these investments in research projects in new areas, and then new startups are able to take that data and that research and run with them. Whether you look at uh, Xerox Park or any example like this, often the big corporate giant that pioneers and subsidizes the research isn't the one who benefits at the end of the day. It's uh, the province of startups and small businesses that can, in a sense, make out and really capitalize on this research. Would you agree with that? 
Yeah, and I, what I would also add to that is that apparently, apparently, from what I understand, this is open source. So what what they're working wow. on at Microsoft is open source. So you know they're just trying to create the framework, and you know there's obviously great business value for Microsoft if they can be like a pioneer there, because then they can build out other parts of their business that that would allow them to value capture there, which of course is very smart. I mean, I think we want to encourage that. As people who care about civil liberties, we want to, we certainly want to live in a world where there's a lot of value capture on top of technology that protects people's civil liberties and privacy. So it's this really interesting moment where we have this like historic alignment of incentives potentially over the next decade, decade plus, where not only is there going to be huge advancements in cryptographic money and cryptographic data, uh, whether it's, again, like, you know, your health data, your biometrics, what's what's on your Apple Watch, uh, you know, what 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 your uh, eating preferences are, all these different things that you now give away when you use apps, all these different apps you use, that there's an ability for us to build a different architecture where we can own that stuff. And I think there's going to be obviously massive business opportunities there. So it's kind of exciting that like sort of finally, like human rights and civil liberties and privacy might be really aligned with with people who are trying to like, you know, make as much money as they can, uh, which is which kind of a bizarre thing, but hopefully it works out. And I think it will work out because in a sense, if you have many different businesses who are all of a sudden incentivized to develop a price for your data, you start to be valued as an individual. And so now you have a situation where an individual's normal behavior can start to carry economic value. So as we start to get into a world with autom- you know, automation and AI and different people are having a harder time finding work, I think this could actually create economic empowerment for a lot of individuals. Yeah. And what, I think, what, are you, what are your thoughts this, on that? Yeah, this is a big topic of discussion you heard at South by Southwest, obviously. Uh, and I think people try to pack a lot under the AI sort of buzzword, but I think there's two areas that that at least human rights folks should be should be looking at when they go to an event that's uh, AI related. One is automation, and I think companies should be open about it. Like that is a word they should use. It's not going to be very friendly from a PR point of view, but let's be frank with people. You know, it's automation. We're going to be automating a lot of processes which will liberate people from menial tasks. Like that's quite good. Right. Um, on the other hand, there's like big data analysis and surveillance, right? So that's like the other half of AI. Again, could be very good. Like a lot of things like in the medical research area, for example, like, you know, when it comes to trying to cure cancer, trying to save different species, like trying to understand how to be more efficient with everything from waste management to how to get water to people in different areas. Clearly, big data analysis can be useful, but we have to be really, really careful because as we're building these big systems of control, you know, people will try to manipulate them. And what what we're looking at here in the sort of like, quote unquote, AI space in, in several different countries around the world now is a national uh, campaign in, in different contexts to kind of promote this idea of like getting everybody onto this big national database and then using AI to make things more efficient. So the Chinese Communist Party actually has like a apparently like a promotional campaign to like try to win over citizens to this idea. India social scoring system. Well, not only that, but just generally speaking, like like trusting in this AI buzzword. And India has like this adhar system, right, where they're you know the the PR is like, hey, don't you want everybody to be banked, right? Don't you want everybody to have access to goods and services? Which certainly there's truth there. We do, but what they're really building is this big database that has everybody's information in it. And like all it takes is one sort of hyper-nationalist 
authoritarian person to get elected for that to be, you know, a pretty bad situation. And then even in, in countries like Venezuela, you're you're now seeing the government try and like load everybody on to trackable systems. So so in many different contexts, everywhere from Estonia, a very free country, like all the way to China, you're seeing governments try and popularize this idea of like, let's get everybody on these like digital databases and let's use AI to make them more efficient. And there's a lot of like people sitting down to think about how can we kind of sell this to people? Because citizens right now are concerned about it, not necessarily for the reasons I'm concerned about it, like privacy and surveillance stuff, but for the for, for the other reasons, for the automation reasons, you know, they're worried about like the, these things kind of stealing jobs. I think both are fair and, le- and legitimate. And we need to devote a lot of time thinking about how AI and big data analysis, how we can best protect ourselves and best protect our property, civil liberties, et cetera. Yeah, because I think what people forget is that you're always being asked to trade security for liberty in one form or another, right? And this is just seems like the the new way that people are being asked to tra- to trade that uh, in a sense. And maybe it's a good trade, though. Uh, maybe for the first time, ins- incentives are going to be right. But uh, I'm not I'm not so sure. Yeah, look, I mean, what was clear on our panel yesterday with with these experts who either were born in or spent so much time in China is that really the next twenty thirty years is all about these two models, the the Chinese model, which is going to be basically experimented on in Xinjiang in this Muslim region, and then whatever works is rolled out across the rest of China and then exported to Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, the rest of the world through the Belt and Road, which is this like kind of kind of clunky phrase, but it's really the, the Chinese government's model for how to promote its like both physical and technological infrastructure. So everything from like cities, roads, bridges, uh, ports, and like the telecommunications and information infrastructure that connects everything. So what's been concerning is to see even European nations sign on to this lately. So like Italy, Greece, they're saying they're gonna like join the Belt and Road Initiative. So that's one way we could go. And that's really scary from a civil liberties and privacy uh, perspective. You know, the competing model isn't monolithic. It's basically like, it's like America and Europe's kind of like messy checkered mixture of laws and regulations that govern our, mm-hmm. our data and what govern what companies can do with it. And, you know, what I would say is that it's not perfect. Uh, there's a lot of violations here that, you know, Snowden uncovered, for example, and there's a lot that's been going on in Europe that's worrying, but at least we can like sue our governments. At least we can check them. At least we can challenge them. And we want to preserve this system, meaning we want to preserve our ability as citizens and advocacy groups to push back and to help shape what our telecommunications and and information infrastructure is. We want to make sure that cryptographic data, that we can secure our data and money. Very, very important, because if not, like we're going to end up with the Belt and Road, which um, is even coming pretty close to home. I see friends now on Facebook the last couple of days sharing images of like WeChat payment terminals in like Miami and Houston. I mean, it's getting pretty close to home here. So so I think we need to oh, be like really, close. really, really, really cognizant about this. Yeah, it's super close. Whether you look at uh, product placement and influence in Hollywood or different startups in Silicon Valley that have an investor from who's based in an authoritarian country who all of a sudden after the first couple of rounds begins to ask for information rights and asks scientists to enable macros and things like that to just suck out all of their data and give to the government. This stuff is happening right now. It might not be infrastructure related, but it's certainly real in Silicon Valley. I don't think people want to talk about it. Let's try with the last couple of minutes here to shift to maybe more uh, positive 
light here, which is you just got back from uh, Mexico. And, uh-huh. you know, every time the Human Rights Foundation does an event, you have just incredible stories. I've been to one. I really want to keep making it out there and get to others. What's your favorite story that you heard from the recent event that you did in Mexico? In Mexico? Well, yes. um, thank you for that, Chad. I really appreciate it. Uh, the Awesome yeah, of course. Form series is a lot of fun. Uh, I hope everybody can learn a little bit about it and, and get involved. We had a series of speakers down there. Uh, one that 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 was always is fascinating to me. Her name is Lisa Sanchez. She's a, a Mexican uh, advocate against the war on drugs. And what was really cool to hear was that they've achieved some serious victories in Mexico with regard to the, the policies that have enabled this kind of like narco state, right, to like rise and take power in Mexico. And, you know, what's very clear is that it's an international effort. So when someone uses drugs in the United States that are illegal, you know, that 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 there's a whole like production line where that came from, right? That that goes from like origin countries through transit countries and then into consumption countries, right? And this is both like there's a track that goes from Latin America up through the United States. There's a track that goes from Central Asia to Europe. There's a track that goes from Central Asia to East Asia. There's even a track that goes from like South America through Western Africa and into Europe. So there's a lot of these these sort of like transit lines for drugs. But what does give me some hope is that there seems to be advancements in sort of all three phases, right? So consumption countries, let's say the United States, we have uh, kind of an obvious progressive momentum towards the legalization of things like marijuana and treating things more reasonably and not locking people up for nonviolent crimes. I mean, this seems like really a positive development. In Europe, you have countries like Portugal, which are innovating in this area successfully for years. And it's even in happening in some countries like Uruguay and South America. So so that was really cool to hear. And then also she's she's achieving some real victories through hard work and advocacy in in the origin and, and sort of uh, transit countries as well. So I think people often don't consider the human impact of the war on, on drugs. And, and it would consider you to think about that it's not just the prison system in the United States, which is pretty much a, a disaster, honestly. I mean, so many Agreed. problems of our own country stem from this idea that, that people get put in prison for, for these nonviolent crimes, but, but that it causes a lot of civil liberties violations uh, in, in everywhere from Colombia up through Central America to Mexico. So this is a whole process, a whole sort of healing process, and it's happening. It's always really great to get an update from, uh, from Lisa on, on that. And I, I think that connects with a lot of listeners probably who are interested in this area. But uh, if you look her up, Lisa Sanchez, uh, Oslo Freedom Forum, you can learn more about her um, organization and, and learn more about what they're doing to uh, address this area. Awesome. I love it. When it comes to cryptography, are, is there anything new that you've learned over the last couple of months that makes you really, really uh, hopeful and optimistic about the future? Is there anything like in cryptography in the space that you're just so excited about that you can't wait to tell people about? I don't know if it's, it's certainly not new. It's, 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 you know, at this point, almost 10 years old. But when I talk to people who live under whether it's hyper, hyperinflation sanctions in a country like Iran, financial controls in China, uh, whether they just suffer from lack of access to the financial system. It's it's just it continues to be pretty mind blowing that that we as humans created a way for people to secure value independently from any third party. So when you talk about the the rise and the ongoing development of Bitcoin, it just continues to blow my mind that like, you know, I can acquire, receive Bitcoin, put it onto a 
flash drive, for example, and take it offline and, you know, even memorize a set of backup codes to it and destroy the flash drive and keep this value in my head. And a lot of people are like, well, brain wallet, that seems kind of sketchy. What if you forget? There's tens of millions of people in the world who've memorized the entire Quran. So like, like if you're, if you're serious about this sort of thing, you can do this. And, and it, it's just, a, it's, it's such a mind blowing idea that you can secure uh, value in this way and then just transmit it to anyone else on this planet within minutes, as long as they have internet access. And, and it's done in a permissionless way where you don't have to ask for permission. You don't need to have a passport or an identity. So I think the, the closing thought I'll leave people with is that I think that cryptographic money is going to have such a big impact on foreign aid and the way that we think about helping others. So for example, today, when a government or a philanthropy or a family office or an individual wants to help someone in a country like Rwanda, let's say, you have to like go through the banking system and send your money through the Rwandan bank. And then the dictator in Rwanda, for example, who was just caught like murdering his opponents yesterday, um, you know, he gets to decide where that money goes and it sort of trickles down maybe to the people that you want to get to. Well, we can kind of like sidestep that whole thing. And, and we, you know, as long as the as these folks have phones that have Internet access in some way, we can directly correspond with them in a peer to peer manner and just kind of create this parallel economy. And, and that to me is so powerful because so many governments manipulate aid. If you remember, like, for example, in Burma, when there's been tsunamis and natural disasters, the Burmese government will actually like prevent aid from coming in. If you've watched the news lately, you've seen the Venezuelan government like burn aid as it as it comes in. And this is obviously a cruel and unusual, but like a bunch of technologists made something that gives us the ability to say like, basically screw you. Like we don't have to play by your rules anymore. We can give support directly to whoever we want, whenever we want. And that's incredibly optimistic. And I think that's, that's something that's really exciting and something we should all dig into and think about. And maybe it has ramifications, you know, beyond money as well. But these cryptographic networks are are really going to help people, I think, take the power back and, and address some of the serious injustices uh, in today's world. And I think hopefully that's something optimistic to leave people with. I couldn't agree more. Alex, thanks so much for joining us and stay safe out there. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.